Hello everyone, and welcome to a very different world than the one we are used to. While we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic and its catastrophic effects, my aim has been to do some reflecting. So what follows in this and the next few episodes are some of the fruits of that reflecting. I know there is some risk in saying anything about this pandemic at this point. For some, this is a distant statistical issue, maybe only vaguely concerning, while for others it has already caused enormous pain. In the midst of this, joke memes have been flying around like crazy, but there is a very serious side to all of this too. For some of us, COVID-19 has merely caused a few disruptions, while for others, it has already been the source of genuine grief and loss. Still, here I am, uh, entering into this risk of saying something knowing that some of what I say will sound hollow, knowing that my intentions may be misunderstood, and knowing even that the best of my words are insufficient to account for the complexities of this time. I am trusting you out there, as I always have, to make up your own minds, and just so you know, I really do mean well, even if that may not always come across. If I can offer anything helpful, a different perspective maybe, then I would be grateful. I'll do my best, even if my best is, right now, not perfect. So, to kick us off, let's have a look at a few verses from Genesis 7. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all of this that the Lord had commanded him. These are words from a very ancient tale, but many of you will immediately see some parallels and resonances with the world that we're in now and in your own experience. In ancient mythologies, as René Girard points out, floods are often taken to be synonymous with plagues. So, in a sense, a flood has arrived, and many of us have needed to build an ark to wait in, to salvage some of our world, although we are painfully aware that we cannot save all of it. The logic of the story is that what is saved needs to ultimately be generative and creative, needs to, in the end, replicate the original work of creation, which concerns ordering and producing life. And there is an issue of purity here too, the need to make distinctions where things have become confused and blurry. I do plan to say more on this issue of purity in the next episode, although I will touch on it more obliquely here. So there is a plan in the story. It's not just about preservation, even though it is about that, but is about making sense of the world that is passing away and the new one that is yet to come, preparing for that new world. There's more than a hint of judgment in the story, as you will have picked up, although to understand judgment, especially that of God, we need to be very careful not to confuse Western modes of retributive justice with the restorative justice that is at the heart of the biblical picture of God. Here's another beautiful little verse from Isaiah 26 verse 20 that echoes our present state and concerns. 
Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. This verse is also about seeking a kind of ark, looking for a place of safety, but in its immediate context in Isaiah, if you go to Isaiah 26 and the chapters around it, you will see that ideas of judgment are there too, although also ideas about life emerging out of death. I don't need to say the obvious, but I will anyway. We're in a time of crisis, a time of global pandemic, a time in which the familiar has been rendered strange. This is what the flood means, at least in part. And if your experiences have been anything like mine over the past few weeks, this has been a time of incredibly mixed emotions and rapid-fire thoughts. Plans have been upturned. In the midst of others, clarity has often been replaced by confusion, anxiety, anger, a whole range of emotions. For a lot of people, there's been panic buying. For many, there's been worry, especially around the state of the economy, its implications for life after all of this. People all over the place are caught up in something of a state of pandemonium. While I usually try to dwell on more universal subjects uh, in this podcast, more timeless subjects, I am going to shift gears and deal in this and in the episodes that follow with life in the midst of all of this. This is a kind of existential theologizing, a thinking and talking about God in the midst of, in the brute experience of a world undergoing a kind of flood. I want to look for and offer some meaning in the midst of what is obviously a crisis of meaning, but in doing so I don't want to get too lost in intellectual abstractions, although it is my nature to do some of that. I am all too aware, as many of you are, of the major existential costs of living in this time of global pandemic. Many of my friends are facing the loss of their jobs. Many of my students don't have access to sufficient technology or data. So they have concerns about how they're going to continue their learning if they cannot go online. And more seriously than that, many of us are facing fears of getting sick or of those we love getting sick and dying. Many of you, for all I know, have already gone through various levels of hell. And for what it's worth, my thoughts and prayers are with all of you at this time. We don't have a choice but to get through it, since there is simply no way around it. I know there are some reasons to be both optimistic and pessimistic, room for all kinds of feelings and approaches and thoughts. It is a time of immense ambiguity, since any previous sense of our individual realities having separate compartments has been obliterated. We now, most of us, live in one little box, namely the home, and all dimensions of life now collide in one space. Now we are expected in some sense to work from home, to be teachers for our kids, to be parents, to be friends and family, all at a distance from each other and yet somehow also gathering our entire world into this one small space. Oddly enough, making decisions about the way forward hasn't been so easy. It's, it's been like trying to draw a topographic map of a landscape that won't keep still. The Christian theological response to a time of crisis, however, cannot be either pessimistic or optimistic. It must be apocalyptic. It must involve pessimism and optimism in a very strange mix. Apocalypse doesn't mean, as many of us tend to think of it, the end of the world. Certainly, that is how it can feel like the world is ending. 
but rather apocalypse means in theological terms a revealing or unveiling. An apocalypse is a revelation. Apocalyptic times are times of immense pressure and stress and strain and yes, as I've suggested, confusion. And through pressure, stress, strain and confusion, things are uncovered that have been hidden. Our world has been revealed to us in a new way. It's almost glowing with terrifying possibilities, as if the material world is a haunted space with this new coronavirus as a ghost that we must not anger. But since it is invisible, we might wonder in our action. And since this ghost is invisible, we might wonder if our actions are turning this ghost into a poltergeist. Still, While the world has been revealed to us, its form exposed, rendered more naked and vulnerable than usual, we have also been revealed to ourselves. Our deepest, often hidden convictions come to light in a new way. There's an image from Albert Camus' novel The Plague, which starts with rats kind of bubbling up from the dark, hidden places and emerging into the light of day, only to die. One character remarks in the novel that they didn't even know there were rats in the town of Oran. Well, this is apocalyptic. What is hidden, what is deep within the underground of life gets revealed. There is no way to hide your light under a bushel at this time because the apocalyptic global landscape is exposing our lights to ourselves and to others. So that's how I'm thinking about this time we're in. It's apocalyptic which means it raises some questions. What is it revealing? What sense can we make of it? One of the oldest technologies we have for making sense of things is via stories, especially in ancient stories like those we find in the Bible, like the story of Noah. We find patterns of behavior and thinking revealed that are as relevant today as they have always been. And more than that, we find a sense of what it means for our posture towards the transcendent highest good that is God. I'll be jumping around the Bible quite a bit in the episodes that follow, not necessarily working in as linear a fashion as I would like. I'm putting this together in some haste, and I am likely to come off as more unprepared than suits me. Some stories that I'll be turning to deal with living in the midst of pestilence and plague more directly, while others deal with the subject more indirectly. The point of looking at stories, though, is to notice patterns of unveiling, patterns of revelation, to notice how meaning is only accessible in patterns. It cannot be seen in isolation. Context is always necessary. The point of finding meaning is that it'll help us to understand something at the heart of apocalypse, namely what part we all play in it. To have truths revealed is to have an opportunity to respond and not merely to react to those truths. In the story we began with, Noah is faced with a time of immense crisis. But a crisis, as the Greek meaning of that word suggests, is a time of decision. You'll notice this in the Noah story, a focus on very specific details. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So you can see lots of distinctions being made. There is a kind of general principle, collect animals, but there's also a sort of sub-principle looking for specific 
male and female pairings that can produce life later on. So in the face of chaos, it is possible to seek order, to set up some kind of clarity, to make choices. In a way, this is what we must ask always, even in more ordinary times. What task has been placed before me? What must I do here in this specific instance with these specific limitations? The issue of limitation is at the heart of the Noah story. He builds an ark with very particular limitations. He has clear rules about who gets to go with him, how he is to act in response. This is very important to consider for our time. In a way, many of us are finding ourselves forced to be in new territory. Suddenly the world we're in is not the world we have known and gotten used to. Value structures have been flipped on their heads or inverted or suddenly find themselves clashing together and mixing up. As I've said, this is what you would expect from apocalypse. A crisis implies often, if not always, a crisis of distinctions, which is to say we will need to make distinctions. We will need to make decisions about how to separate things and gather things. A crisis also implies that the facts and the experience of the facts cannot be neatly separated. COVID-19 may be a small imperceptible virus, but this time of crisis has shown us that it is a medium or technology of sorts that is radically reconfiguring our social and psychic life. Its sheer ubiquity means that it is reconfiguring the world the way that print changed the world, the way that the telegram or the radio or the cell phone have changed the world. And we should notice, as I pointed out on this podcast before, that when a medium emerges, a new medium, it is always felt as catastrophic. New media often spark wars, which is why this pandemic may be thought of, in a sense, as a kind of World War III. The prediction of some was that World War III would be fought in our minds. And in a sense, this has proved to be true since the predominant contagion that we're all grappling with and trying to navigate our way through is thought contagion. It is thought contagion that has thrown our worlds into question. Think of those two basic postures towards being, the first being about openness towards the world and to others, and the second being about retreat from the world and others. We all adopt something of a mix between these two postures, depending on our unique personalities. And yet, in the wake of this pandemic, the way that we adopt this mix of postures will be flipped. Suddenly, where we would normally be more open, we are forced into a posture of retreat. And where retreat is enforced, as it has been for so many of us, our desire for openness to the other may be awoken. Relating to this, it's helpful to look at two of the most obvious political value structures that have been flipped relating to the recent culture wars. On the one hand, there are groups of people typically self-identifying as leftists who aim to open borders, welcome the others, celebrate diversity, and so on. There is much good in this and also much imbalance. But now, even these people have found their borders closed. Some of them, symbols and exemplars of openness, are the most vehement advocates of social distancing. Political supporters of groupthink are now on the side of a kind of radical individualization, which is, paradoxically, also a result of groupthink. More off-kilter leftist types on the side of cancel culture have found all culture cancelled, including their own. 
rallies and protests and other gatherings, all of these are no longer livable. If you were celebrating diversity in an inclusive manner before, you are now forced to do it in a state of rather alarming separation and isolation. On the other side of the culture war, rightists tend to celebrate strict borders, insist on clear identity markers, celebrate diligence and strict rules and the like. Well, their value system has also been flipped on its head. A pandemic cares nothing for borders or strict identity markers. All of us can be affected and infected. And yes, while indications are that the disease COVID-19 is more dangerous to some than to others, there are unknowns that more conscientious types cannot account for. You may be very healthy, but this doesn't necessarily mean you are not at risk. You may have an underlying condition that would typically render you at risk, and yet you may turn out to be fine, even if you do contract the disease. Even with borders shutting down in more dramatic ways than most of us have seen in living memory, we are faced with the result of a truly global village. And so the political landscape globally is looking radically different right now. Many of the core issues, or rather what people have in recent times thought to be core issues, these seem to be looking a little bit more frivolous right now. The entire world has been reshaped around a new central issue, the infinite value of human life. People are precious and should be saved. In the most catastrophically affected places where health systems are overwhelmed, difficult choices are made around the question of who is most likely to survive not around specific questions of identity. Still, as I mentioned, in apocalyptic literature, many biblical passages also talk of judgment, often even punishment. I know many Christians in this time have made pronouncements about the COVID-19 pandemic as God's judgment on the wicked. Honestly, I wish people were more theologically literate than to be so ridiculously absolutist. And I also wish they were psychologically astute enough to know that their pronouncements say more about their own thought life than about the actual state of things. Remember, if you will excuse the tautology, apocalypse reveals. And so what we should ask before arriving at simplistic one-sided conclusions is simply this. What is it revealing? And then what should I do in response? Creation is a kind of text, certainly as the ancients knew well, but it is an ambiguous text. It too is apocalyptic, something that reveals many things, many dimensions, many meanings. Some will perceive judgment and others are going to see grace. For some it is a time of fear, while for others it is a time to reconnect to the faith. But the created world is not identical to God. The modern myth of monocausality has somewhat conflated creation and God, as we find in more pantheistic theologies like Calvinism. But in the great tradition, especially in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, the relation between God and the world revolves around an absolute distinction. God is transcendent, meaning totally other than creation. There is vertical causality, God bringing creation into being, and then there is horizontal causality, which is the causality that that works in the realm of the being that we understand as more imminent. So we should be very careful about making pronouncements about God's will or judgment when we cannot in any finite understanding contain the understanding of the infinite. 
Certainly, if you know the Noah story, you will know that many people do not get saved, and some people like reading the story as a clue into the fact that God is a moral monster of some kind. This is to simply misunderstand the core symbol in the Old Testament. The judgment of God is not a sign that God is pantheistically bound up in his creation and therefore causing terrible things to happen. The judgment of God is rather a symbol of the natural consequence of our being part of contingent reality, being part of this contingent created order. It's less a sign of God's active will than a sign that to be part of creation is to be prone to it, to be open to both its beauty and its terror. I mentioned that my approach to this time has been to reflect, and that is exactly what it means to live in an apocalyptic time. We have an opportunity to reconnect to what is valuable, to rethink our world. We're looking back at what is ending in a way as the world goes through this catastrophe, but we can look forward, as Noah does, to what might be created out of all of this. And I would certainly recommend that we do both, because that's what it means to live in an apocalyptic time. We're looking at where we are in the midst of this change. Noah looks at his world and he does what he can. He looks out for the finite constraints of the moment and he works with them. This is what Father Jean-Pierre de Cousard suggests in his masterful and profoundly encouraging work, Abandonment to Divine Providence, which I am reading at the moment and I would highly recommend. The world presents us with itself, reveals itself to us in various ways and This is true even for a very stressful time of upheaval. And our job is to look for what we can do in it, not for what we cannot do. In particular, de Cousard recommends looking for ways to exercise virtue, which in the great tradition means focusing on becoming like Christ by making use of even the difficulties and traumas of the present as a kind of training, as a means by which we might draw near to God. As de Cousard says, faith can transform this world. It can turn the ugly into the beautiful, can change terror into an opportunity to see more deeply into the loving heart of our Heavenly Father. And by doing that, we might love those around us better, even if it means doing so at a distance. One of the more astonishing dimensions of the Noah story is how little he does when he gets into the ark. Ancient flood legends are found all over the world and they often tell stories of heroes who are actively taming the flood. If you look in the epic of Gilgamesh, you find a particularly striking example of this. They are actively and heroically dominating the situation. Noah's story is remarkably different. It is a story of obedience to God, who is the highest good, and of submitting himself and his family and those animals to that ark, trusting that the ark will carry them to safety. Noah does what he can, works with the constraints of the situation, and yes, in the end, he finds land. Most of all, I think, he centers himself by trusting in the goodness of his creator, not by being drowned in the various turbulences of his time. He doesn't do this perfectly, as you will know if you read Noah's story to the end, but he is still counted as one of the great heroes of the faith. He offers us an example that we can pay attention to as we try to get through our own flood. 
The great rabbis of bygone ages have found Noah's simple obedience troubling. Noah does so little, he merely obeys, the rabbis point out, and is this really enough? Is merely complying with the constraints of the moment sufficient for the life of faith? Some rabbis say, no, it isn't. Noah walks with God, as we are told, and we are certainly commanded to do the same, but his obedience needs to be transformed, too, into something else, what we might call responsibility. And yet, obedience is where we need to start, and Noah's example is a good one to follow in this regard. Trust that we do have things to do here, even if it means doing them at home. My hope, given the present state of quarantine and social distancing, is to write, record, edit, and release these podcasts as frequently as I can, although possibly a little haphazardly, given that work and life and home have collided and are overlapping more than usual. I am also expecting some delays. Still, if you do find this helpful, share it with a friend and feel free if you have the means to support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. But also, if you can't support this podcast, don't worry. Uh, I know this is a time of immense economic uncertainty and I'm going to carry on with it as long as I can. So that's it for now, everyone. Grace and peace to you.